fair to say the lobbying industry doesn't have the best of reps, as demonstrated in the 2005 film Thank You for Smoking. My product puts away 475000 a year. Oh, okay, now 475 is a legit number. Okay, 435000 that's 1200 a day. How many alcohol-related deaths a year? Well, 100000 that... tops? That's what, 270 uh, a day? Wowie. 270 people, the tragedy. Excuse me if I don't exactly see terrorists getting excited about kidnapping anyone from the alcohol industry. And that's understandable. It's a murky old field. One the public doesn't know too much about. It's often associated with underhandedness and duplicity. But in a sense, it's a very old idea. There are people in our world who make decisions. Those decisions affect other people's lives. And lobbying is the practice of giving those decision makers information about what the impacts of their decisions might be. Often lobbyists can be really helpful. They can explain to you what is actually happening on the ground. And in many cases, politicians, they don't know what's happening on the ground. For three years, they're up there on the bridge. However, the lack of transparency around what lobbying is and how it works means it can be a problem when well-known people move into this sphere. And that's exactly what happened a couple of weeks ago. Former Cabinet Minister Chris Farfoy has started his own consultancy just months after quitting politics. Other countries have rules in place to prevent this from happening. And at least two political parties support similar measures being introduced here. I don't begrudge Chris Farfoy leaving Parliament and looking for another line of work. He's got, got to pay the bills and feed the family, but the reality is he has had access to very significant information, sensitive information. He understands what his, his former colleagues think on various issues. I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, what is lobbying? What rules do we have in Aotearoa? Why are so many people up in arms about Chris Farfoy's move? And what moves could we make that would improve public trust and confidence in this nebulous world. Holly Bennett is a lobbyist. She started her company, Afi, about five years ago, after some time working in the Beehive. Now, it's important to emphasise something here. Holly is a lobbyist. This is how she makes her living. And Chris Farfoy's company is her competition. So, you know. Don't forget that. But she does have some really interesting insights into lobbying and how it works and ideas that she reckons could boost public trust in this area. So I began by asking her why she thinks lobbying as an industry has this bad reputation. I think that's a multifaceted thing to unpick. For me predominantly, when I'm looking at it from my perspective, the industry has been around ever since we had Parliament, right? So 187 years, I think it is now, or 167. I'd have to go back and have a look. Long time, yeah. And um, we've never really had any way to look at what the industry does, what outcomes it achieves, how much money is in the industry itself. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, and those who have an inquisitive mind that want to ask them, they're always stonewalled. Mm -hmm. So my thing is when I think about the industry itself, we've got a lot to answer for. Because we can do things to improve the way that people perceive us, but nothing's being done. So, like, what what do lobbyists do? <laughs> so, at its heart, 
there's a couple of things. The first thing is I help people understand what it is that Parliament, the executive, officials, all of these things are and how they're all different, because they are. Yeah. Parliament's different to the executive. The executive's different to the officials. They all have a part to play, but they're all different, which means you speak to them differently, right? Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think about lobbying in terms of thing. So the principle of relationships. That's what drives what we do at Uffi is relationships, which means I'm coming at what I do from a people-first perspective. And people might be like, well, what does that mean? It means that when there's a political shitstorm happening, I'm recommending to my clients, we don't do anything. We ain't going to be charging in with some copa, we're not going to be asking for this, that and the other. Because what you actually have to understand is that what we see play out on the 6 o'clock news is actually these people's lives. And so what I like to balance with, with is, is there a time pressure with the things that I'm advocating for? If there's not, we can take a people-first approach. And that is what I choose to do. I think whether or not the industry has done that, I'm not sure. You'd have to go and ask other lobbyists. But that is what I do in my business. The nature of lobbying is we don't observe it. Simon Chappell is the director of Victoria University's Institute of Governance and Policy Studies. In fact, the better the lobbying is, the less we are likely to observe it. One is kind of making suppositions on pretty limited information. And on one level, lobbying is part of engagement with the political system. And, you know, if I bump into my local MP at the school fair and start bending his or her ear about you know, whatever the issue of the day is, three waters, if I have a strong opinion, am I lobbying my, my local MP? So the, the, there are a wide variety, I guess, of, 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 of forms of lobbying, some of which are accessible to the ordinary New Zealand, and mo- most of which aren't accessible and aren't observed by the ordinary New Zealander. Someone who has to make decisions has a big responsibility and they want to hear mm. different perspectives so that they can make the right decision. And I suppose in the most generous light, that's what lobbying is, right? It's uh, it's it's giving people information so that they can make decisions. Correct. But the, the thing I'll point out on what you just said is making the correct decision. That's a matter of perspective. And then also what it comes down to is this is what lots of people are comfortable with. Sometimes the deepest pockets have the ability to buy the best advice then to influence making that decision. Doesn't mean it's the correct decision but it means that our leaders are making that decision. Now, I always contrast that with the view of you could say something to every single politician under the sun. doesn't mean they're going to agree with you, right? And that's their job. But what I, when I think about that, is that this industry should not be something that those who can write the biggest cheque gets the best advice. That is my problem with this industry. Things like persuasiveness, charm, clubability are factors which are highly likely to be behind successful lobbying because there are these two things going on, uh, the information provision and the the persuasion, the narrative, uh, the story about why the decision maker should be making decisions which the lobbyer wants the decision maker to make. And if we come to Chris Farfoy, I mean, you know, I, I don't 
know uh, Minister Farfoy, uh, but obviously I've you know read about him in the media, and he seems a very uh, you know generally agreed to be a, a lovely and charming man. Exactly the qualities you would uh, uh, you know would be part of being not the only dimension of, but part of being a successful lobbyist. Well, the revolving door from politics to the business world of lobbying is causing a stir. Less than three months after leaving Parliament, the former government minister, Chris Farfoy, is heading up a new PR and lobbying firm called Dialogue 22. What did you think when you, when you read about the Chris Farfoy stuff? My initial reaction was great. More competition in the industry. That's a good thing. In the world of journalism and media, it was greeted with a mixture, I think, of shock and uh, amazement and Mm. a lot of people thinking, that's not legit. It's not legit for a cabinet minister to be setting up a business offering lobbying advice, advice on how to lobby politicians three months after after stepping down from that position. Well, I mean, the irony is it is legit. Like, you you can do it. So that's actually the wrong way to contextualise it. The question actually is, should it be? able to be like that? Is it appropriate? So I would argue, no, it's not appropriate. Because the only way I can really compare it to anything is insider trading. There's information that he holds that's extremely relevant to decisions they're making right now that no one else in our industry has. Explain that idea for someone who's like, you know, interested in politics, I guess, but like maybe doesn't get why this is such a big deal. What sort of information would a cabinet minister have that would be helpful in that kind of context? Yeah, correct. Okay. So one of the things is that when you think about cabinet, uh, and for those who are listening that might sort of not understand the structure of it, it's your 20 most senior ministers in in government and what's one of the parts of the executive. And so they're the key decision-making body. And so um, the chair of the cabinet is the prime minister. And so what they do is they meet every Monday to talk about, you know, decisions that they're making as a government. And um, things can um, stand or fall within cabinet, right? And so what one expects when ministers go to the cabinet table is that they're well briefed, they've thought about the things that they want to raise, the papers that they're presenting uh, to their colleagues around the cabinet table um, are well thought out, got good robust um, policy. And so what it means is that for decisions that the government is making, um, and remember, government has the ability to stop and start industries. Mm. And so that's why it's so important, because the economy at scale can be changed by the decisions that a government makes. And so the reason why it's important is that a former minister, the Honourable Chris Farfoy, is privy to information that those of us in the sector out here don't have and shouldn't have. Because what it means is that then you're able to, if you know something that other people do not, you're giving them an unfair advantage. Then they have the ability to make better, and I'm being better in terms of fiscal return sense, better decisions for that business that other businesses don't have. I mean, when the, when the Prime Minister was interviewed about this on Morning Report, she said... Every New Zealander knows our intentions and policies by our manifesto. Oh, come on, come on. Are you really making a comparison between a member of the public and a cabinet minister? No, I'm actually trying to answer your question, but you're not pausing long enough. You call him BS on that? It's ridiculous. I, can't, I, I, I mean, that's an untenable position. There are things that I knew as a political advisor, somebody who could not sit around that cabinet table, that I knew that the general public did not know. 
You set up your lobbying firm after working at the Beehive. Correct. How's your situation different? Oh no, so so okay, great parte. It's not the, it's not really different at all. And so the argument is whether people like me as well should be able to go and do that. The reason why no one was interested in me is because oh I wasn't a minister, I was a like middle tier advisor, wasn't particularly, you know, noteworthy. And so no one sort of gave me a second notice. Well which is fine. But what I would say is, yeah, the discussion for us now is whether or not we think that's appropriate. And I would argue it's entirely inappropriate. <laughs> I shouldn't have been able to do that. My initial reaction is a little bit of shock that uh, that shift would be so blatant. I guess surprise that we still don't have some basic cool-down protections that most other developed uh, Westminster and democratic systems have. We have very weak protections, though, compared to most countries, don't we? I mean, many Western democracies have a calling-off period. You're simply not allowed to do what Chris Farfoy has done and and not allowed to do what your own Chief of Staff, Gordon John Thompson, did. It's an 18-month call-off period in Australia, right? But but in here, I would argue, but also you can see in Australia, they don't have the same rules we do about whether you can draw sources of income while you're an MP. So I'm not sure that I would make a direct comparison there. That prevent the sort of revolving door that we've seen on, on several dimensions in you know the last decade or so, where, where someone who was a lobbyist went into the Prime Minister's office. Gordon John Thompson, he came in as the Chief of Staff for about four months over summer to help Jacinda Ardern set up the government. Um, meanwhile, he is a, a lobbyist and he owns a lobbying company. He's a, um, a director of that lo- lobbying company. And in this case, someone coming out of Cabinet very, very quickly, uh, leveraging that for private post-Parliament advantage. You know, all of these things establish precedents and, and they establish precedents across the political spectrum. And once a norm like this becomes established, it becomes quite hard to dig oneself out of. And unfortunately, this is a very strong norm now that's being established that this is acceptable behaviour. And, you know, my understanding is that his move has been, you know, endorsed by the Prime Minister as a legitimate thing to do, you know, which is extremely unfortunate. Are there any regulations at the moment around lobbying in New Zealand, any industry standards or limitations or or guidelines or anything like that? Or is this really the Wild West? Um, It's pretty much the Wild West. We, we, unlike many other uh, Western democracies, we have virtually, you know, no no, uh, self-regulation and no external regulation. I mean, we're talking a very small industry here, but also a very important industry. It's shown absolutely no sign of self-regulation, and and my guess is that's partly because it's such an amorphously defined industry, and many people who are doing lobbying will be doing other activities in addition to lobbying. PR would be the standard thing or, or offering legal services that, that um, people engage in. So, yeah, it is. It, it is uh, completely unregulated and largely invisible. And most of what we know about lobbying in New Zealand comes from journalism. It comes from very limited information we have on people who have uh, access cards to 
to parliament buildings and who appear to be uh, lobbyists. And it comes from the internet where you can track down a variety of firms, some of whom, you know, self-describe on their website or have been described in the media as lobbyists. You spoke about the idea of uh, regulation and perhaps um, that that might take the form of legislation. But I know a lot of lawyers, I think, and, and legal academics who, who would bristle at the idea of that, who think that New Zealand is already over-reliant on, on legislation. You know, we have this attitude of, oh, there's a problem in New Zealand society, let's pass a law. And I guess they might also say, if a piece of legislation is to go through Parliament, it should be addressing a definite social ill. And I, I'm curious as to whether... Do you think that there is definitely an obvious social ill here, or is it the lack of sunlight that you're talking about? Yeah, um, I, I, I guess stepping back somewhat, we're looking at the moment internationally at something of a crisis in the ways that representative democracies are functioning or are not functioning that that across the the western world and it's something that we've been somewhat immune from thus far that there has been a decline in trust in democratic institutions if we think of lobbying as a dimension where boundaries can be blurred between um, legitimate and uh, potentially self-interested or pocket-filling behaviour. That's one dimension. If, if we're concerned with the overall health of our democracy, you know, and, and as I say, largely speaking, we've managed thus far to largely isolate ourselves from those international trends. We need to be looking at all of those potential things that can undermine our democracy and start thinking now about how we can protect that trust and enhance that trust. And in, in that context, lobbying is something I think we need to look uh, seriously at. We should be demanding the highest standards from the most powerful people in the country. And cabinet ministers are, are up there amongst the most powerful people in the country. That There's a real demonstration effect here. That said, yeah, it is absolutely true. We, we pass too much legislation too fast in New Zealand, but that's an entirely separate and much broader issue. We were talking about the lack of regulation before. Yeah. Is this an industry that's ripe for more regulation, do you think? I always hate this idea that the first thing that we need to rush to is regulation. Mm. Because then what you're saying is that you've got no faith in the industry itself to sort itself out. One of the things that I would like to see first, before regulation, so before we use a legislative structure to sort of say, this is what we're looking at, is to look get some industry-led stuff. Now, I've got a couple of ideas. So there's three that I think, and I'm not sure we need all three, but I'd, I like to have options. So the first one is a code of conduct. I think that's important. The second one is a register. And then the third, which is probably more at the pointy end, but it's something I'm quite interested in, is in essence like an oversight body similar to the New Zealand Media Council. And the reason why I look to the New Zealand Media Council is because there is an inherent tension between the fourth estate and politics, right? And that's a balance that always has to be maintained because otherwise how are you going to get accountability? And so when I think about the New Zealand Media Council, I think what it does is actually quite 
robust. And so I think, who would I like to model from? And it would be something like the New Zealand Media Council. And then it gets to the next thing for me when I think about something like that, is then having members of the media on it. Because remember the bad behaviour at the moment, if there is bad behaviour, which I'm like hazard to say, yes, there probably is, can then really only be called out with the people who have bigger tools than we do. And that's the media. You don't actually need to pass law. There are ways of putting, you know, for example, the Cabinet Manual indicates that, you know, certain things are conflicts of interest and, and, and they need to be managed in appropriate ways. Um, equally, you could put something in the Cabinet Manual about post-parliamentary employment of, of, of ministers, that ministers are expected to not take up lobbying positions for a certain amount of time following their leaving of, of Cabinet. So we don't necessarily need to pass parliamentary legislation. Um, again, we could have political party leaders taking a, a strong and, and coordinated position is that, that we expect if you become a cabinet minister in my government, I expect you to behave in this sort of way, and you can state that publicly. And again, that makes it much more difficult for a cabinet minister to, um, you know, leave and go out, go out lobbying. You know, this could be collectively decided by political parties. Um, a particular political party could decide. To, to lead it and say, right, I mean, the Greens would be an obvious case because they've shown a concern about this before, that if you're going to be a Green MP um, and you become a Cabinet Minister or even an MP, um, you can't work for a lobby organisation for a certain amount of time after you leave Parliament. So we, we, we don't necessarily need legislation. What we need to do is to establish some guidelines that create constructive norms that create more trust in the democratic process as a whole. Do you think... In an ideal world, professional lobbying wouldn't be a thing? I guess I am an idealist, uh, and in a perfect world, no, they wouldn't, that all citizens would be able to equally participate in the participative democratic process, whereby between elections, electing our representatives, they could convey the information that they held and their personal opinions to their representatives and to relevant um, public servants. I recognise that we don't live in an ideal world. So if we think of lobbyists as those what third-party intermediaries that I've got a, an issue I wish to raise with a parliamentarian or persuade a parliamentarian or a public servant of, I'm going to knock on the doors of, uh, you know, XYZ lobbyist and say, hey, I'd like you to represent me. Basically, most citizens and residents of New Zealand don't have the resources to do that. And that creates a fundamental inequity in a democratic system, which is part of that clash in a you know, money-driven society between the kind of, the, the again, the ideal that we have of one person, one vote, and then the actuality, which is, well, yes, everyone's got a vote. Well, not, not everyone, but, a, but, you know, a good chunk of the population, uh, but they don't have equal resources and access. And so the actuality is some people have a stronger influence on the democratic process than others. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. 
You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benge and produced by Sarah Robson, and thanks to Holly Bennett and Simon Chappell. Matewa.